Bob Odenkirk comes on strong as an angry dad at war with the mob. The Better Call Saul star shows his street fighter skills in violent but entertaining revenge film. That's from Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times talking about Nobody, the number one film right now in America, our feature review. I'm a huge Odenkirk fan, so cannot wait to tell you all about it. Also... The Master, one of Paul Thomas Anderson's best films. Uh, He's one of my favorite filmmakers. In fact, it's a favorite of his. I still have some issues with it, particularly the ending to me feels a little aimless, but I just wanted to talk about it because I've given a lot of grief to Joaquin Phoenix winning Best Actor for Joker, but his performance, as I said at the time, owed a serious debt of gratitude to his character in The Master, Freddie Quell. And I had no issue with his greatness in this movie, in which he was nominated for Best Actor, along with the incredible performances of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams, who are both also Oscar-nominated. It's a great film and a film that I enjoy watching. Joe's actually seen it twice, so look forward to watching that uh, and discussing it with all of you again. In addition to that, entertainment news involving the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Wow, wide open race right now for Best Actress. I don't know what's going to happen. And speaking of the Academy Awards, the film Collective is up for Best Documentary and Best Foreign Film. It's awfully rare to pull off the Daily Double. A film from Macedonia did it last year. Remember that beekeeping movie? Rather bland, bad teeth. That did it last year, and this year, Collective from Alexander Nanau. He is the Romanian director. Great dude. We're going to talk to him about his film and why it's just so powerful. And this Mount Rushmore from Joe. Serious actors you forgot were comedians. This is a good topic because of Bob Odenkirk, you see, uh, as a serious actor in Better Call Saul, now in an action movie. There's some names over the years you forget. You go, hey, that's right. That guy was actually at one time a comedian. So I like that list, and that's what we're going to do today for our Mount Rushmore. As always, I hope everybody is staying safe, and I hope that you can support our little podcast called Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. I rank my movies uh, out of four Maple Leafs. Please do rank it out of five stars. This is from Tom's Must One. Hey guys, love what you do. I recently watched a movie called Most Violent Year, starring Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. I was left speechless slash confused. Obviously, it pays homage to Michael Corleone or Mike Crazy. Both leads give a great performance. Please mention this great movie. Thank you. So, Tom, i got to be honest with you. I saw it. I, I was actually underwhelmed. I like a slow burn, but this was more slow than burning. And I like Oscar Isaac a lot, particularly because you mentioned the Corleone homage. He does look a little like a young Pacino. He's got that great intensity in his eyes. I love that film he did with the uh, Coen brothers. Uh, and Jessica Chastain's obviously a really good actress as well. But uh, I wasn't crazy about it. Joe, have you seen A Most Violent Year? I have not. I have not. It sounds interesting. Maybe I'll check it out now, but I have not seen it at end. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't crazy about it, but thank you for uh, checking us out, Tom. I uh, got this from Triple B, 2477. Got to be honest, when I say that I stumbled upon this show, I'm so glad. Love adding it whenever he pops up on the Dan Levitard show. Segments are hilarious. Knowledge and understanding of film next to none. Needed a good film cop pass. Gave Cinephile a shot. Segments are so well produced. That's a hat tip to my man, Joe. Adnan makes every segment enjoyable with his love of film and sense of humor. Bringing Joe into the mix has been great. I love it. Hearing Joe's insights and opinion, such a great addition. Okay, appreciate that. Uh, also, Matt, Matt, great show this week. That's awesome for Joe. NC Barbecue is pretty good. Not Texas good, but pretty good. R.I.P. Lucille, thank you for the tribute. One of my favorite shows. My son just started watching it recently, so it's awesome to be able to rewatch it again and see his reaction to it. Talking about the great Jessica Walter, Lucille Bluth, pound for pound, as funny a character on one of the funniest shows ever in Arrested Development. That sarcastic, withering wit was just so incredibly well done. D Black 519, great show this week. Haven't seen Hollywoodland. Sounds good. I will have to check it out in a future episode. Can you review The Brave One? I know you and Josie, you've never seen it. Just interested in getting your feedback. All right, we'll see if we can add to the list. Let's get into Nobody. Thank you, as always, for giving us some feedback. And as always, you can tweet me at Adnan Esferk or Cinephile Pod. So, Nobody. What a story for this idea. Bob Odenkirk 
former comedian, Mr. Show, him and David Cross, speaking of Arrested Development, then becomes a comic creation on Breaking Bad, and now a truly dramatic character in Better Call Saul. He is a sympathetic character for a character who should not be sympathetic. He's this weaselly lawyer who we saw glimpsed in a very entertaining manner on Breaking Bad. And now Bob Odenkirk says, let me show off my real chops. Let me become an action movie star. Emmy winner Bob Odenkirk stars as Hutch Mansell, an underestimated overlooked dad and husband taking life's indignities on the chin and never pushing back. A nobody. When two thieves break into a suburban home one night, Hutch declines to defend himself or his family, hoping to prevent serious violence. His teenage son, Blake, is disappointed in him, and his wife, Becca, seems to pull only further away. The aftermath of the incident strikes a match to Hutch's long-simmering rage, triggering dormant instincts and propelling him on a brutal path that will surface dark secrets and lethal skills. In a barrage of fists, gunfire, and squealing tires, Hutch must save his family from a dangerous adversary and ensure that he will never be underestimated as a nobody again. Interesting pedigree. Director Ilya Neshuler, who is a Russian filmmaker, and I just find that amusing because the main foil in this is a Russian mobster. And it's one of the best sequences of the movie when he gets introduced to us. There's this tracking shot. It's not quite, uh, you know, the Copa shot in Goodfellas, but he does go into a club and the camera's following him, takes a little snort of cocaine, takes a little sip of a drink, and then goes on stage, grabs a microphone, and starts dancing. Like they're in this Russian club and he's with this Russian female singer and they're like literally singing in Russian. He's dancing. He's got this like, you know, sequin jacket. He's like almost like, a, like an Elvis impersonator. Like, who the hell is this guy? And why am I following him? And then you see him five minutes later and just a ruthless bit of violence destroys a guy. And like, okay, great. That's the bad guy. I've never heard of him before. His name is Alexei Sarabriakov. He plays Yulian Kuznetsov. Just a fantastic creation. I just thought he was interesting and different. When you think Russian mob, you think garish and chilling and uh, unrelenting. That would be Alexei Sarabriakov. That's the foil. Let's get to the hero, Odenkirk. And how the hell did Bob Odenkirk wind up in an action movie? Watched him on Kimmel this week and he was explaining it. He said the writer, Derek Kolstad who I believe he's written the John Wick films. He's, he's a big Better Call Saul fan. And he just said, you know what? It would be really great if we just had a movie. You know, we're always used to seeing guys like Tom Cruise or, you know, uh, obviously Jamie Foxx, Keanu Reeves, all these types of guys. Like, wouldn't it be cool to actually see somebody different? So he's the creator of the John Wick franchise. John Wick 1, Chapter 2, Chapter 3. He goes, you know what? I'm going to write a movie for like Bob Odenkirk. I want to see him in a movie like this. So this wasn't like Tom Cruise passed in the movie. It was like, no, it was specifically written with him in mind. And sure enough, Odenkirk's fantastic because I think that Kolstad, the writer and the actor of Odenkirk realized this would be something fresh, something different. Thinking of classic movies, I mean, listen, you immediately think of like Charles Bronson, Death Wish, but I was thinking of falling down with Michael Douglas, average guy Push to the limit, white-collar criminal, just as that's it. Screw it. Not a criminal, actually, starting the movie. He's just like a you know, white-collar guy. Got the white suit, the uh, horn-rimmed glasses, black tie. Eventually, he's had enough. He's been pushed around, takes a gun out, goes uh, not quite on a killing spree, but starts beating people up because he's had too much. He's kind of like Peter Finch in Network. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And that's what Odenkirk's character is. There's a great montage. Again, I really like the directing by Ilya Neshuler. I cannot wait to see what other films this guy directs. But there's a, like an incredible, I want to say it's like a minute sequence of him like swiping his Metro card, 
his wife telling him he forgot to take out the garbage, him running to take the garbage out, doesn't happen, his son ignoring him, him riding the subway, going to work, punching a clock. It was reminiscent of Requiem for a Dream. Remember those great sequences Darren Aronofsky did? Every time someone got high and you saw the pupils dilate and the quick little sound effects, this is like a minute of that. It was just such a good um, economical form of storytelling in which you can explain in one minute, this guy's life sucks. This is why he's a nobody. Wife ignores him. He misses the garbage truck. It's a dead-end job. He goes home on the bus. This is his life. Until eventually, something happens. There's a break-in, and he has a golden opportunity holding and brandishing a baseball bat in which he can hit one of the burglars who is immersed in her accomplice who has been attacked by Odenkirk's son. So picture that. He gets robbed by these two people who break and enter, and then his son, no, I got him, Dad. He jumps on the one guy. They're wrestling, and the woman is watching, because you can tell it's a woman because of her voice, although they have masks on, and Odenkirk grabs a bat. He can literally bash her in the head, chooses not to, and says, let him go, son. The guy then, after being let go by his son, punches his kid in the face, and they leave. And you go, God, what a terrible loser of a dad. Not only could he have just hit this person and helped save his son, but instead his son gets punched because his dad doesn't want to use the bat. He's a pacifist. They go on the PlayStation. Now he's lost the respect of his son. Like, come on, dad. You had a, you had a perfect shot that broke. He's like, nope, it's not right, son. I don't believe in violence. Wife kind of gives him a look. And he says, you know what? Screw it. He goes to work that day. He's thinking about it. He comes home. And then his daughter, who's really cute, says, hey, what happened to my her ring or a bracelet, something like that, necklace, some sort of silly thing. And that just pops the cork. He's like, F this. He goes, grabs a gun, takes justice into his own hand, realizes that he can try to find these people, tracks them down, takes care of business. That leads to another issue. And then eventually you're going to get the, uh, the Russian mob guy involved. I will not say further more than that, except to say this is a highly entertaining movie. It is an action movie in the form of a John Wick, and it is ultra-violent, particularly the climax. Even I found a little excessive. This comes from a guy who counts Scarface as one of his favorite movies, and the blood count felt like it was approaching Scarface-type levels. It was awfully operatic for those last five minutes. So even at that point, I found it a little tiresome, but the climactic murder is done so well, and it's just so um, inventive. And that's what I would say is my big takeaway from Nobody, which I'm giving three Maple Leafs. In any other hands, it's a generic action movie, but because it's got a fresh director, a fresh villain, and a fresh approach to its star in Bob Odenkirk, who convincingly portrays an action movie star, I thought the movie ended up being a very entertaining escape. And as always, as I appreciate, a nice economical film, 90 minutes or less, let's tell a tight story. That's I'm giving Nobody, three Maple Leafs, a very enjoyable movie at the theaters. Joe. And as far as just the action sequences go and the fight sequences go, you know, the director infamously made Hardcore Henry in 2015, the first person uh, shooter movie. And then the writer, as you noted from the John Wick series, how, how does that translate just to like the fight scenes? How cool are they? Yeah, the scenes are so well done. Because again, you know that it's coming from a good place. Like When someone says to you, hey, listen, we got the John Wick writer, you know he's going to come up with these elaborate ideas. And I am sure he was very involved with the director, Ilya, in terms of, okay, how do we kill people and make it look inventive? Like, think how many people he's killed in his movies, right? Between the, the John Wick movies and whatever else he's created and, you know, screenplays that haven't been produced or other ideas he's had. Think about that skill set. I have to be a screenwriter of action movies and think of inventive ways for people to die. This is like 8 million ways to die, to live and die in L.A. Right? These are all these ideas. Um, it, it's pretty cool to see it, show and to see the way it's rendered. 
again, I can understand someone who doesn't like the movie because, well, basically it's just about an average guy who gets pushed around and then ends up killing people and taking on the Russian mob. Like what, there's not a much depth to this. This is about one inch of water <laughs> in terms of depth of storytelling. But that's not why we go to the movie sometimes. We go to be entertained and the visceral thrill of a whole lot of violence and a good old shoot 'em up and good soundtrack, by the way. Love Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World, which was obviously going to be used. As soon as you hear it, okay, they're going to use this in an ironic manner. Uh, but some other good oldies, some good, uh, you know, some good uh, techno music at times. It was a, a very eclectic soundtrack, much like the film. You can tell its influences go all over the place. So I think you would enjoy Nobody, Joe. I'm recommending it to everyone. I'll definitely check it out. Is there any Wu-Tang in it? RZA's in the film. Oh, that's right. RZA is in RZA's great. I'm glad you mentioned that, actually. RZA is good. I mean, the thing about rappers is they can often end up being really good actors. I mean, there's a long lineage of rappers as actors going back to Ice Cube and, you know, Boys in the Hood. So, yeah, Riz actually does a good job. Thank you for reminding me. Again, eclectic cast. Who's expecting? Bob Odenkirk, some Russian guy I never heard of, Riza, Connie Nielsen, and Christopher Lloyd. That's right. Dr. Emmett Brown plays his dad in the movie, Odenkirk's dad. He's in a nursing home. He's just getting, you know, spoon-fed sugar, watching old action movies, westerns. All of a sudden, then he gets involved in the fracas, and, and he's having a blast. In fact, Odenkirk told the story on Kimmel that there's one scene where he has six shotguns around his neck, and they told him, hey, listen, you know, you're a little bit older. We can get you some, some fake ones, some prop guns. He goes, no, 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 no. I want the real ones. So that is Christopher Lloyd with six shotguns running around. Not to uh, spoil anything, but he's, he's definitely having fun in the violence as well. So really good cast all over the place. Allison Wilmore of Vulture. It'd be nice if nobody contained any trace of irony or introspection to the way it connects Hutch's malaise to his depiction of his emasculation. No, Allison, this is not a movie for irony. This is just a good old shoot 'em up. And Richard Brody of New Yorker, what makes this fantasy of cowboy-style self-defense so disturbing is that it isn't limited to the movies. It's the very same belief system that gets used in real life to justify the American obsession with gun ownership. That is also an interesting point. I I try not to think about that when I'm watching a movie like this, but I hope it does not have an adverse impact on people and is not seen by the wrong people because then, yes, they would uh, obviously have some ideas to do some bad things. We all know, obviously, there's been way too much gun violence going on in this country. I hear Richard's point. Moving on, The Master. Freddie Quell, Joaquin Phoenix, is a troubled, boozy drifter struggling with the trauma of World War II and whatever inner demons ruled his life before that. On a fateful night in 1950, Freddie boards a passing boat and meets Lancaster Dodd, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the charismatic leader of a religious movement called The Cause. Freddie tries hard to adhere to Dodd's weird teachings and forms a close bond with his mentor, even as other members of Dodd's inner circle see him as a threat. Just a beautiful, strange, bizarre movie. Early on, Freddie Quell, you can tell, is not all there. Again, he's a, he's a damaged soul who served in the war, and you see him with his friends making a gigantic sand sculpture of a woman. Like, it's, it's, it's like incredible attention to detail. Out of sand, kids are making sandcastles. This guy's making a giant woman with large breasts, with a vagina. It's just unbelievable, the detail. And then you cut to him, literally standing by the beach, jerking off. Like, oh my God, like, what, what kind of a movie is it? This is the protagonist making a sculpture of a woman he's beating off. I'm like, I don't know what I'm in for here. And then you see him later on working in a women's clothing store. And he's just, he always seems a little bit off. And he's just a character who you can tell never really fits in anywhere and who's trying to find his place. He is aimless, and therefore, he seems to really get swept up in the mystery of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Lancaster Dodd, on the boat. The first scene of these two guys together is one of the funniest scenes you'll ever see. I mean, I was howling. So what happens is that the movie, in many ways, is thought to be a critique of Scientology. 
Paul Thomas Anderson's friends with Tom Cruise. They made Magnolia together. He shows Tom Cruise an early cut of The Master. Tom Cruise is pissed. Doesn't like it. He's like, no, you're taking some elements of Scientology and you're spoofing them or using them for, you know, satirical reasons. Hopefully P.T. Anderson told Tom Cruise, you're a freaking nut job. Shut up. This is the movie. You should be happy I let you watch it. Get out of here. Anyways, one aspect of my understanding is of Scientology is coding, in which you're asked a series of questions, uh, they track them, and they, you know, put them away for whatever reason. So it's, it's obviously rooted in psychiatry. What is it when you go to a psychologist or a therapist? They ask you questions, they make notes, you go from there. So the first time Seymour Hoffman offers to do some coding here to, see, to Joaquin Phoenix's character, what you're struck by is if you've ever been to a therapist or, you know, therapist's office, they're not asking you questions the way this guy's asking. It's, it's rapid fire. You know, the equivalent of like, what's your favorite chocolate bar? What's your favorite color, et cetera? And, and Freddie is just trying to keep up. But he's asking him odd questions. At one point, he says, are you trying to kill me? He says, no. He said, are you a secret spy? He goes, no. And at one point, Freddie can't take it. He literally farts. He just completely cuts the emotion. The moment starts laughing. And Seymour Hoffman doesn't break character. He goes, you're a scoundrel. Like, you're a filthy animal. He's just insulting this guy. He then asks him, have you, <laughs> have you ever had sex with someone as a member of your family? He says, yes. Seymour Hoffman, again, without breaking a beat, repeats it, deadpan. Have you ever had sex with someone who's a member of your family? Yes. Who? My Aunt Bertha. Why? Uh, I was drunk and she looked good. How many times did you do it? Three times. I'm like, what the hell is this? How disturbed is this? And yet it goes from a scene of some great high comedy to eventually gripping drama. And it's shot literally in like a close-up of Joaquin Phoenix. There's rarely, if ever, a reaction shot. You hear Seymour Hoffman's voice, but it's literally just a close-up Maybe a bit of an over-the-shoulder, and it's uh, it's on Joaquin Phoenix. It's amazing how he holds the screen for like a solid. I I feel like the scene goes ten minutes. It may only be like five minutes, but it goes from unintentional comedy, this freak job farting, to eventually becoming very sad. He's talking about trauma he's faced, what happened to his father, what happened to his mother, why he's such a disturbed individual. I'm like, oh my god! And at the end, he wants to do more. And Seymour Hoffman goes, oh, "That's enough. We'll do our next coding session next time." But Seymour Hoffman loves his hooch. He has some odd concoction, and he says, "Like, what is in this thing?" Like absinthe or pine tar, chemicals. What is in this thing? But he loves the hooch. Later on, Amy Adams, and again, just a disturbing scene. Seymour Hoffman's in the bathroom, and she comes from behind him and says to him, you can do whatever you want as long as I don't find out. He's like, okay. Unzips his pants, starts giving a guy a hand job while telling him, no more of that hooch. I'm tired of you drinking that hooch. You're basically insinuating you're an alcoholic. Stay off that hooch. Seymour Hoffman lets loose like the, I mean, it's got to be the loudest orgasm in cinematic history. It's just, just a bizarre, bizarre scene. You're going, what the hell am I watching? But it starts to make sense because the master, resplendent in his three-piece suits and his ornate dialogue and his flowery speeches, he and Joaquin Phoenix, the very damaged Freddie Quell, are two sides of the same coin. And that's why the master relates so well to this guy because he goes, I can see in you what I am. I can see without refinement or sophistication what I could be. And he sees that Freddie is just, you know, to use it in Freudian terms, he's like an id, right? There's the id, the ego, the super id, a uh, super ego, excuse me. It's like if you watch Mean Streets, one of the greatest films of all time. You know, De Niro is pure id. He's just, just being driven by emotion. And the ego is Keitel trying to you know, steer him. In this case, the id is Joaquin Phoenix. And maybe that's why the master appreciates him. And you start to get a sense of what the master is up to. These odd techniques. I mean, there's one scene where he's got Joaquin Phoenix, you know, cl closing his eyes, touching a wall, describing it, then going to the window, describing that back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You go, what is the point of this? And one scene again, Seymour Hoffman is dancing with a bunch of nude women, full mops, everything. You're like, what the hell is this movie? I don't understand what's happening. But what it is, is it's showing you this eccentric way of life. 
It's showing you how dangerous cult leaders can be. It shows you how when somebody is so desperate to take a glass of water, they will go to the Sahara and slurp up the sand. And if someone tells them it's water, they think it's water. This character by Joaquin Phoenix is, I think, in many ways representative of a lot of people in the world who are aimless and searching for some sort of meaning to life, some sort of significance to what they're doing because they feel like it's useless. They feel like they're a waste. And then they meet the master, and this guy's charismatic and different. But slowly but surely, they realize he's full of crap. This guy's just a crackpot. There's one scene they're in prison just swearing at each other. He's like, he knows. The master knows. He goes, you're making this stuff up. You don't have any divine guidance. You're not a prophet. This is a bunch of garbage. a bunch of hooey. And honestly, the movie is so transfixing to watch for those performances and the cinematography. I remember seeing it in LA in glorious 70 millimeter. It was an incredible experience. I still think the movie kind of drifts at the end. There's no real climax of the film. The last 10 to 15 minutes, Freddie tries to reconnect with a lost love. That doesn't go well. I wish there'd been a little bit more oomph, but maybe that's the point to P.T. Anderson's movie, that life does not have a natural conclusion, that more often than not, people just keep drifting and drifting, and a drifter like this ends up searching for meaning. Four Maple Leafs for the master. Joe, you've seen it twice. What do you got? You know, it's a movie, you're right, it's kind of a mixed bag, but that's what I kind of like about the movie, because I think it's a plot and a story that by the end of it, everyone gets something different out of it, and... The second time I watched it, Adnan, for you, were there any things that you picked up on now watching it again that you didn't the first time? For me, it was just um, the the allegory of a dragon. And then I noticed throughout the film, Joaquin Phoenix always has his hand on his hips. He's really skinny. He's protruding his neck and he's just living and acting like kind of a dragon the entire time. Was there anything like that that you picked up on? Wow, that's an amazing insight. I love. I did not think of that. But as soon as you said it, that's the visual I have. I, I, I did think like his body type was just strange. You're right. He's emaciated. I've never seen him that skinny. He's just anemic. And you're right. Just that image of him sticking his head out and the hand on the hip, that... Dude, that's incredible. I, I didn't pick that up the second time I saw it. I just more was swept away by just the visual beauty of it and just how eccentric it was. Like it's just, it's it's so unconventional in terms of its storytelling. You know, there has to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. This movie just kind of is a middle. But I, I enjoyed every aspect of it, even recognizing that the ending could have been a little stronger. Tom Charity of CNN.com. In the end, it may not have the emotional uplift the Academy or a popular mainstream audience craves, but make no mistake, this is an enthralling drama about a peculiar American restlessness and the striving for insight and grace. Damon Wise of Empire, an often brilliant 50s throwback character drama that never feels nostalgic with terrific central performances and a luminous, unforgettable visual beauty. I mean, it is a gorgeous film to look at, isn't it, Joe? Oh, it is beautiful. I mean, even, you know, you're talking about the beach to open up the movie, and even though he's making this, like, crude sandcastle, just even that, the colors, the tone, the the pace of it, it's all beautiful, and he holds it throughout the entire movie. At no point do, does it feel like it's jumbled together. Like, the, uh, the aesthetic consistency throughout the movie, is, I think, is really, really well done. How about that first coding session when he says, have you ever had sex with a member of your family? I mean, that, how shocking. Like, oh, he had yeah. Bertha. <laughs> Yeah, that came out of left field. When I saw that, I was just like, all right, I guess, I guess we have to know more now. So we, we, we can't close this, this can of worms. We have to dive in. Like if the movie had not hooked you by then, any sort of incestuous sort of questioning, oh, that's going to make me want to watch this movie. Oh, I'm telling you. There, right. I, I, it's definitely a dramatic film, but knowing P.T. Anderson's movies, there's always humor in them, right? There will be blood is a drama, but it's got some great humor. 
I mean, I abandoned my boy. I drink your milkshake. Boogie Nights is a straight-out comedy. Magnolia is pretty serious, but again, there's some comedy there with William H. Macy's character. Phantom Thread, when he made it, somebody asked P.T. Anderson, when are you going to make a comedy again? And he laughed and goes, I just did. So he views Phantom Thread as a comedy, which again, you could call it a uh, period drama, a romantic uh, film, but it's it's funny. Like Daniel Day-Lewis is just this tortured guy who has his <laughs> lover feed him mushrooms, which are poisonous. Like, think about that. It's just bizarre. All right. Great, great filmmaker. Uh, coming up next, entertainment news, including the winners of the SAG Awards. We speak with Alexander Nanau, director of the Academy Award-nominated film Collective, plus the Mount Rushmore of serious actors you forgot were comedians. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Well, this was strange for the SAG Awards. No host, one hour pre-taped. I'm glad there was no leaks. We actually found them out as they happened. Uh, some movies that were not surprises, of course, Chadwick Boseman wins Best Actor. But the big takeaway to me is what the hell is going to happen with Best Actress? Big win for Viola Davis coming off the top rope. So to be clear, Andrea Day won the Golden Globe. She was not up for Best Actress here in an absolutely ridiculous movie. Amy Adams was up for Hillbilly Elegy, which is one of the worst movies of the year. She's up against <laughs> the fact she beat Andrea Day is just embarrassing. Thankfully, that was rectified in time for the Academy Awards. So keep this close. Andrew Day wins the Golden Globe. Viola wins the SAG. Critics' Choice Award, I believe, was Carrie Mulligan. And the BAFTA, I think, might have been Francis McDormand. Correct me on the BAFTA Award. But wide open race. If you asked me two months ago, I'd say, oh, Francis McDormand's going to win her third Oscar. Now I'm like, I don't know what the hell's going to happen. Viola Davis winning a SAG. The SAGs are a pretty good indicator of the Oscars. Generally speaking, because the actors are the biggest branch of the Academy, SAG winners go on to win at the Oscars. So maybe Viola Davis is now the favorite. Generally, the Critics' Choice Awards are a pretty good indicator of the Oscars. Maybe that means Kerry Mulligan's the one to win. I mean, McDormand now is probably trending third, maybe fourth after Andrew Day. I don't know what to make of it, but it's interesting. Best Actress race is going to be fun. Motion Picture cast, Nomadland was not nominated, so as expected, I predicted the Trial of Chicago 7 would win. It did win. It's got a chance, I think, of winning Best Picture because, again, it's a very actor-heavy movie. Just as we've seen in the past, a film like Crash could be Brokeback Mountain. Maybe the trial of Chicago 7 can upset Nomadland. God, I hope not. Uh, supporting actor, it feels like a runaway freight train. Daniel Kaluuya is winning everything. I was hoping for Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night Miami. Ain't going to happen. Supporting actress was my favorite win of the night. I was hoping for either Maria Bakalova, Borat, subsequent movie film, 
or yes, the winners, Yu Jung Yoon for Minari. Incredible, incredible win for the grandmother who steals the show. Uh, speaks broken English. During her speech, at one point she said, I hope I'm making sense. My English isn't great. <laughs> She's so charming, so funny. You see Leslie Odom giving her a, you know, a, a drink, a tip of a drink, so to speak. Uh, the other nominees were saying, no, you're great. Glenn Close looked genuinely happy for her. Olivia Coleman looked genuinely happy for her. So Yu Jing Yun wins for Minari. That can only be a great sign that hopefully she's now the favorite to win the Oscars. As long as it's not Glenn Close, just a horrific nominee. I'm sure she's a lovely lady. Drama series ensemble was pushing hard for Better Call Saul. Of course it didn't win. Of course the crown won. Comedy series ensemble, no surprise. Schitt's Creek, good for Canada. Male actor in a TV movie, he's won everything. I was hoping Hugh Grant for The Undoing. How about my man Ethan Hawke, the good Lord Bird? Of course not. You knew it was going to be Mark Ruffalo, dual role. I know this much is true. Great actor, great performances. Female actor in a TV movie or miniseries. Would have been nice to see maybe Kate Blanchett. Of course not. What are you kidding? Anya Taylor-Joy for The Queen's Gambit. Just no surprises. Female actor in a drama series. Of course, Gillian Anderson, The Crown. One surprise, best actor in a drama series. I was hoping hard for Odenkirk. Instead, Jason Bateman for Ozark. I thought it would be Josh O'Connor for The Crown. Male actor in a comedy series was cheering for Rami Youssef. Of course not. The favorite wins, Jason Sudeikis, Ted Lasso, and a better speech where he did not appear to be high as he was at the Golden Globes. Female actor in a comedy series, no surprise, Catherine O'Hara, excuse me, great Canadian for Schitt's Creek. Uh, stunt ensemble, The Mandalorian, and stunt ensemble in a motion picture, Wonder Woman 1984. Joe, the big takeaway here is best actress feels wide open. Yeah, definitely. And it'll be interesting. The BAFTA does take place this weekend on B- on the BBC, the 10th and 11th. Um, only Vanessa Kirby and Francis McDormand of this group are nominated. I think Francis McDormand will win, but that that's definitely the category to watch. Yeah, that's, it's definitely going to be interesting. And how about Yu Jing Yoon winning for Minari? I mean, isn't that great news? I mean, that's best actress is always tough to see. Best supporting actress, excuse me. So that's great to see. Amazing. I, I, I'm still in Maria Bakalova's camp, but uh, I love Glenn Close, but I'm glad she's not being recognized this year. <laughs> exactly. Just come on, get, get recognized for the ones that you actually deserve to be recognized for. That's just how we view things here. Um, all right. So that's the news involving the SAG Awards. Next up, Stephen Yoon, who did not win for Minari. Love him, but more good news for him. You got to cash in, right? You got to take advantage when your you know, career is building steam. Fresh off that Oscar nomination for Minari. Now, could be starring in Jordan Peele's next film. Huge. The premise, even the genre being kept under wraps. The cast also set to include Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya, who about a month from now is going to be winning Best Supporting Actor. Peele is writing and directing the movie, which is expected to debut on July 22nd, 2022. It's looking a little, a little over a year until we actually get to see the movie. No idea what it's about, but Get Out was a commercial smash. Four Oscar nominations. Then Us did well. Collectively, his films have generated more than $500 million at the box office. His Monkey Paw Productions also backed Al Pacino's Hunters and Amazon. So this is great news for Steven Yeun. This is a guy whose credits include The Walking Dead, Burning, and Okja. And now uh, the fact he's going to be in a movie with Jordan Peele. Big news for Steven Yeun, Joe. Really big. And I remember when we were speaking with uh, Jermaine Fowler for Coming to America, he was talking about his relationship with Steven Yeun and just, he seems like a, a good down-to-earth dude. And he's he seems like someone who's easy to root for. So I'm wishing him nothing but success. Yeah, he's also going to be seen in the Netflix comedy Beef. He will star on the TV show alongside Ali Wong. So look forward to that. Great news there for Steven Yeun. All right, that's the news. Now it's time with Alexander Nanao, director of the Academy Award-nominated film Collective. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Well, it's one thing to be nominated for an Academy Award, but how about in two categories? So congrats to Alexander Nanao, who joins us now. His film Collective is up for not only the best documentary, but also best international feature film. Here's the story. Collective follows a heroic team of journalists as they uncover shocking widespread corruption after a deadly nightclub fire, the mysterious death of the owner of a powerful pharmaceutical firm, and the quiet resignation of a health minister, the team of intrepid reporters expose a much larger, much more explosive political scandal. Alexander, first and foremost, thanks for giving us a few minutes here on Cinefile, and congrats on being a double Oscar nominee. Thank you very much, Adnan, and thanks for having me. So I saw the film last night. I'm so grateful to uh, your entire team for sending it to me, so I was able to watch it. This was really well done on all levels because it starts out literally with a bang. I'm not trying to be facetious, but there is literally an explosive fire that claims the lives of 27 people at a nightclub in Romania. And then all of a sudden, you know, the officials are reassuring the public, the surviving victims are going to be okay and everything's fine. And then weeks later, obviously the causality starts getting out of control. It's fast paced, which is something you don't often associate with documentaries, but it's also probing and investigative journalism. Let's start there. What was it about this story that you felt compelled to tell? Oh, most of all, uh, the fact that this fire and the manipulation of the healthcare uh, system that claim that um, the Romanian healthcare system is, you know, on top and, and can treat all these patients, uh, it, it seemed like something that we, we wanted to look into. But most of all, we wanted to look into um, how um, populistic, corrupt and incumbent power relates to its citizens. And once the investigative journalists started to investigate the healthcare system and the power and their lies and started to unveil things, we figured that for an, for, for an observational documentary, which we wanted to do, uh, this might be the best way, uh, the, uh, the best entry door to see the stories through the eyes of investigative journalists. And the whole concept, listen, people behaving badly, you know, there are cynics out there who are going to say, yeah, of course there are. Of course there's bad doctors. Of course there's politicians who take bribes. But there is something different about what you did. I think it was just, I personally was struck by just how callous everyone is. Like, I mean, as, as cynical as one may be, the level of corruption and just how um, widespread it was to me was was particularly something that was tough to take. How about for you? Yes, it was tough to take. And uh, it, it was something that uh, made me reevaluate the, the boundaries of, of inhumanity. Uh, but I now I'm not surprised during the, the pandemic to see that we see the same level of corruption in so many different states and the same level of incompetence. Uh, it's amazing to think your film being Romanian, the first ever Romanian film nominated for Best International Feature Film, previously known as Best Foreign Film. Uh, it's amazing to think, because Romanian films, listen, I'm not uh, an expert in them, but I remember uh, Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days, for example, is a great film, 2007 was not nominated. What does that mean to you, specifically uh, being a trailblazer in this regard, uh, finally a Romanian film being recognized? It's for sure a great honor to be, you know, that Romanian cinema finally gets recognized with a nomination. Uh, but for sure, this also comes, as you say, you know, after um, so many years of um, in, in which Romanian cinema proved to be one of the best cinemas in the world. Uh, and at the same time, I think it's, you know, for us, it's honoring because this story really is a story about a turning point in Romanian society. It is a, a, a story that was a wake-up call for the Romanian society. And since then, the relationship of, of, of citizens has changed to the press. Uh, and 
the citizens are more, let's say the civil society really started to take, you know, things into their own hands uh, and people started to change the way they, they follow politics and they want to get involved in their communities and society and want to change them to the better. Another Romanian film, when you think about just corruption and such. I think of the death of Mr. Lazarescu, which is about Mr. Lazarescu, excuse me, an old man who goes to the ambulance and the hospital, the hospitals, doctors are refusing to treat him. That was actually a dark comedy, but it did make me think of other Romanian films I've seen in the healthcare system and all the rest of it. You mentioned Romanians becoming more politically active. Is that in response, Alexander, to what's happening not only in Romania, but around the world, the rise of populism, whether it's in America with Trump, uh, whether in Brazil or Italy, is that connected or is that a separate issue in Romania? It is totally connected. It, uh, while we we shot the film, we realized that what we are what we are following a story in which investigative journalists try to to hold uh, populist, uh, incompetent, and corrupt politicians accountable. We realized that the world around us was transforming into that. It started with Brexit. Uh, the Trump campaign came in Brazil, uh, Duterte. Uh, you know and. Yes, it is. We share a very common story around the world and with it, very common fears that our democratic societies uh, may not survive the attack on, on their institutions by these people that bring in so many incompetent people and, and corruption into them. Yeah, I have a lot of family in England and uh, I'm still shocked by Brexit. Like, what, what was your reaction when you first heard about Brexit? Uh, it was the day when I realized that the story we're filming is a is it will be a global story because we went to bed and said no this will never go through. Uh, the morning we woke up and my partner said Brexit went through and that was such a shock, such a deep sitting shock that I needed two or three hours to get out of bed. It was really I understood that's that's a turning point in in world history. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. And certainly a lot of Americans can relate to that when Trump was elected. In terms of your documentary style, listen, you've made lots of good documentaries, I'm sure, over the years. No interviews, no voiceover. This is your quote here, the director's notes. My process of documentary filmmaking is a purely observational one. It is a process of learning from the life of others, of growing on a personal level by getting as close as possible up to a point of complete identification with the chosen protagonist. At what point mm -hmm. in your career, Alexander, did you make that determination to yourself? No interviews, no voiceover. Over. Oh, I, I was, I think that in film school, I was basically triggered by the films of uh, Robert Drew and uh, also maybe most of all of the Maisel brothers. Um, and I understood, although I was studying to become a fiction film director, I really understood that observational documentary filmmaking might be um, the more interesting uh, medium, let's say, for, for a young director to learn about life, to uh, get access to, to interesting characters and understand them. Uh, and it gradually, I think, I developed my own style and uh, my last two films are like purely observational. Yeah, and it's amazing because what you have to do, and I'm sure this is part of your gift, is you have to earn the trust of those around you so that at no point they're going to say, hey, turn that camera off now, whether it's the Minister of Health or the journalists who are uncovering all these truths. Like, how do you, I guess this is a difficult question to answer, but how do you gain the trust of those whom you are filming? Yeah, it's for sure a complex thing, you know, how you build up relationships to people. But 
I mean, uh, let's say a, a basic description of it is, I think that if you're non-judgmental and, you know, I'm interested in how people function, how they are, I don't judge them. I don't judge, you know, even the ones that we might call the baddies. Uh, I just want to understand how people got to the point that the point they are in. And I think people feel that when you film them, that you are not judging them and that allows them to, to, to relax and be themselves. And uh, for me as a director, I think that my job is to really um, uh, catch, let's say the, the glimpses of authenticity of, of the people I follow. You mentioned the Maisel brothers. It's almost a bit of Frederick Weissman as well, right? Cinema Verite, just just film what's right. happening. You're not, like you said, you're being non-judgmental. The camera is just its own separate object. I love this quote you gave. This is so good. Somebody asked you about, did you realize that Collective has the elements of a detective story or a thriller? And you said, it's funny, in this German newspaper, somebody wrote about the Hexipharma scandal. It was the beginning of May 2016. And she said, it's like the Graham Greene novel, The Third Man, where Harry Lyme is diluting penicillin and selling it in post-war Vienna. But this guy in Romania makes Harry Lyme seem like an amateur in comparison. Well, Harry Lyme ended up committing suicide when he was circled in. And one week later, the Hexy Pharma guy committed suicide. So it was already in my head. Talk to me a little bit about The Third Man, which is one of my favorite movies, and just that influence you had with Collective. Yeah, The Third Man is also one of my favorite movies. And uh, it was for sure a bit of a shock, let's say, because uh, we were reading about the comparison, which is very true, right? And we were thinking about what kind of a society it needs, basically, as in the third man, you know, a post-war society, uh, what are the demands of such a society and what are, you know, the, the boundaries of accepting things uh, of a society that went through war. And, and uh, you know, we try to understand if, if we're assisting in the same thing, you know, a society that basically uh, resembles a post-war society like our, most of our societies uh, resemble now after all these populists were in power, uh, post-war societies, right, where all the institutions were under attack and democracy was basically uh, about to be dismantled. Uh, and when basically around 10 days after we started to reflect on the third man having similar elements like the real-life story of following, the CEO of the company that was diluting the disinfectants in Romania commit suicide. So, yeah, you know, uh, reality is stranger than fiction. <laughs> That's well said. I mean, that Orson Welles speech about the cuckoo clock on the Ferris wheel is just one of the all-timers. I was kind of hoping you'd I think speak. that, yeah, you ahead. know, if we think about the third man, I think that there is one discussion. Uh, I think it's in the, when they are on the, I don't know how you call it, the, the round thing. Where the Ferris you wheel, out. yeah. Yeah. And they have this discussion about money. Uh, and uh, Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles, says, can you see the dots down there, the people? Like, why would you care if some of them disappear and you get a certain amount of money for them? Uh, and that's a bit the state of our world right now. Yeah, it's a very callous scene, but you're right. He's so cynical, and he's just saying, listen, it's all about money. I'm going to get more money, and the money will help others, or maybe it'll just benefit myself. And he, may, he says, the 400 years of democracy, what's that got in Switzerland, right? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> That's just what yeah. the guy's like. Yeah, and it, why would you care if the dots disappear? They're just dots. Yeah, it's totally true. Um, 
This is going to go on the short list, Alexander, of the great films about journalism. I, I don't know if you've seen films like All the President's Men or Spotlight, but I think for anybody out there listening who loves stories about journalism, you're going to appreciate this movie because it goes back to why journalism is important and why reporters have to work so hard to expose these types of scandals. Did you um, Have you been heard from other journalists who appreciate what you're doing here, spotlighting the importance of journalism? For sure. I mean, I talk to, to journalists and even to to people who are married to journalists <laughs> and saw the film with them. And, and they said that, you know, in a way they're happy to see that their profession is shown in a, in a documentary that accurate. Yeah, that's why it's so accurate, because it shows how it's a very thankless work, but it's often very, very important work. Last one, you were able to you know, release this film, thank God, before the pandemic hit. So I'm just curious, what was it like seeing it at uh, the Venice Film Festival, the Toronto Film Festival, Sundance? I mean, do, I, do you cherish those memories more now because you were able to do it before the pandemic? Oh, I think we definitely belong to the, to, to, you know, the more lucky film teams around the world that we still had the chance to experience our work in cinema rooms around the world before they all closed down. Uh, and it was a very important experience for us. Um, and for sure, you know, even in Romania, seeing how young people were queuing to see the film. And even before the release, we toured the country with the, with the film in cinemas. And, you know, we filled like two times big rooms of eight, 900 people per evening because so many people wanted to see it. Uh, and that's for sure something that I would be quite pretty sad not to have had it. Uh, and even once the film was out, for example, in Romania, the number of whistleblowers exploded. Oh, I can only imagine. And a lot of female whistleblowers, which is great to see as well. Collective is currently available on Hulu. I encourage everyone to watch it. It is a double Oscar nominee. Best documentary feature and best international feature film. Alexander Nanau. You can follow him on Twitter, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R-N-A-N-A-U. Alexander, can't thank you enough. I know you're six hours ahead there in Bucharest, but I really appreciate the time and thanks for uh, giving us this wonderful documentary. Thank you, Adnan, for having me. Rushmore. Well, thanks to Alexander Nanau. That was a lot of fun. Now it's time for the Mount Rushmore of serious actors you forgot were comedians. A great topic here from Joe. And uh, I love this list because you forget, hey, Tom Hanks, man, that guy was a comedian at one point. He's not going to make my list. I'm going to go with the ones that, that Joe suggested here, which are the most surprising. You just forget they were comedians. Emma Thompson. Love her in you know Howard's End. Who's not getting fired up for Remains of the Day? Well, she kicked off her career in improvisational comedy, along with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie's another guy. You go, oh, man, he does comedy. That's right. House? Okay, sure. Emma Thompson's my first choice. My next one, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton started as a stand-up. You forget, this guy's funny, man. The Dream Team, one of my dad's favorite comedies. Michael Keaton started as a stand-up. He makes the cut. How about Robert Downey Jr.? How many of you realize he started on Saturday Night Live for the 85 and 86 season? No idea. Right? Less than zero. Goes through drug problems, comes back. He's Iron Man. You picture him as Iron Man forever. Maybe a little bit of Chaplin. Comedian. This guy's a comedian. And last one, I'm going to go with Steve Buscemi. 
Now, again, Mr. Pink, hysterical and Reservoir Dogs, he started in the improv scene in his 20s, decided he wasn't funny, and then switched to acting. So my Mount Rushmore of serious actors you forgot were comedians, which is inspired by Bob Odenkirk, my four Emma Thompson, Michael Keaton, Robert Downey Jr., and Steve Buscemi. Eclectic list. Joe? That is a good list. Yeah, I had no idea until I put this list together that Robert Downey Jr. was even on Saturday Night Live. That one blew me away. He won't be on my list, uh, but I will back you up with Emma Thompson. That one surprised me, and I I really want to get her on the list. Um, I'm also going to put... Robin Williams, I think that that I know people think of him as a comedian and a serious actor as well. He was someone who was able to make the switch, but he did start out as a comedian and won the an Oscar for his a dramatic role. Um, and then I'll go with Peter Sellers. Started out as a comedian on radio in the fifties. Then he was in Lolita and Doctor Strangelove. I know he was in Pink Panther as well, but I'll go Peter Sellers. And then my last one will be. Donald Glover, a more recent addition to the list. I remember when I was in high school, I was watching YouTube videos of him and his old comedy troupe. And if you had told me at that time that he was going to go on to become a a rapper and a cast member on different shows, that he would put together a show like Atlanta, I would have never believed you. So my four are Peter Sellers, Robin Williams, Emma Thompson, and Donald Glover. I love it. Great list. I mean, Donald Glover, good one. I mean... I read about Peter Sellers. He's just an amazing comedian, but you think of him more serious films. He's got that range. Another one that you had on your list here as far as options, Eric Bana. Hulk started on the Australian sketch comedy show Full Frontal. Who knew? Another great list here of serious actors you forgot were comedian. All right. Good mail Rushmore there from Joe. Thanks once again to Alexander and Anal Collective, and thanks to all of you for your support. Go check out Nobody in Theaters. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Lots more movies coming down as we count down until the Academy Awards. As Joe mentioned, the bath is coming up this weekend, so we'll recap those for you next week. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. 